Good evening. Nice to see you here uh, on the opening night of Letbury Poetry Festival 2018 um, to an exciting event with Joelle Taylor and Sabrina Mafus. This is also a good moment to say thank you to the Arts Council England for sponsoring this festival. As we are all eager to see Joelle and Sabrina on stage, I'll keep the intros really brief. I'm sure you can ask them all the questions about their projects later on. Um, as they are both going to do a set on their own, and then they're going to have a little discussion between the two of them. And then you might also get a chance to ask one or two questions, and then they'll even sign their books in the end. So you get a real treat here. So the first one on tonight is Sabrina. And Sabrina Mafus has recently been elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of L Literature as part of their 40 Under 40 scheme, that's really amazing. Congratulations to that. Let's cheer her for a second. That is really cool. <laughs> She's also the recipient of the 2018 King's Alumni Arts and Culture Award for inspiring change in the industry. And Sabrina really is working in all the parts of the industry. I'm not going into all of that now. Um, her theatre work, for example, includes Chef, from which she's going to read uh, tonight bits of that. It's a Fringe First Award winner. And she's also an editor um, of a collection called The Things I Would Tell You, British Muslim Women Write, which was a 2017 Guardian Book of the Year and is currently nominated for the People's Book Prize. Um, she contributed to uh, the multi-award-winning The Good Immigrant. I can highly recommend that one. Uh, and her poetry has appeared in various anthologies. Tonight she will read from her 2017 collection, How You Might Know Me, published by Outspoken Press, which was a Guardian Best Summer Read. And a good summer read is the best we can have here tonight. So let's give a warm welcome to Sabrina. So I'm like a proper city girl from London. So when I get to the countryside, I get a bit nervous. <laughs> so I have to admit, I went to an Italian restaurant and I had a really nice meal and also some wine. <laughs> um, so now I feel much more comfortable, but who knows what's going to happen. Um, I can't see the clock, but I'm going to um, just... I think it's pretty casual. Like we're all laid back here, right? It says relaxed Friday night vibes in the in the brochure. So we we will do relax. Well, actually, I don't know if you know mine and Joel's poetry. But it's probably not going to be that relaxed, but um, we'll we'll keep it structurally relaxed. Um, so this is a anthology that I was in this year. Um, the publishers Saki um, publish lots of different work, but. Um, mostly Middle Eastern based work. Um, they published an anthology that I edited um, called British Muslim Women Write, or things I would tell you British Muslim Women Write. And um, they also did this as a response to Trump's Muslim ban, so-called Muslim ban. Um, and they did it really, really quite quickly and it's a beautiful work. It's got lots of different things in it, photography and artwork and articles and stuff. It's, it's very satirical. It's called Don't Panic, I'm Islamic. So... You know, you can uh, you can imagine it's not like a serious thing. Um, but my contribution is called Postcard from a Muslim Mermaid. Um, and it's <coughs> inspired by... Um, I did a theatre project 
that's what I mostly do is theatre. Um, a theatre project last year in Brussels, um, which is the city in Europe that's got the largest um, Muslim population, Muslim heritage population in Europe, and yet, um, apart from actually in the areas where they live, like culturally, they're almost entirely invisible. Um, so we did a show where various women shared their stories and their writings and their poems on stage and sort of the theme if there is a theme of tonight is kind of showing how you can create work whilst also um working with other in this case particularly women to share their stories and their writing and as much as it is possible to represent other people and their stories do that um and I feel very much a, a huge responsibility to to do that as much as it is possible to. Um, so in order to thread all their stories together, um, I created this character of this mermaid who had amnesia, <laughs> who was just lost in Brussels because it's the only city in the whole world that has ever built entirely over their river, which I never really fully figured out, but I knew there was a really good metaphor in there. Um, so I was like, I'm using that metaphor. Anyway, um, <coughs> so this is her. I'm not going to do that much of it. I'll just do some of it. Who do you want me to be? I speak slowly, weighed down by the rocks in my hand I've picked up from the shore. I am careful. I must speak clearly, with meaning, feeling. There must be no misunderstanding. I am a mermaid. I have a rock in each hand and I'm speaking. Who I'm speaking to is yet to be determined. I can see the sun. It's almost blinding. Maybe that's who's listening. The sun. Maybe that's who'll give me some answers, some clarity, some understanding. The sun in a world full of misunderstanding. This would be nice to have such a bright, blazing ball of support. You see, something's happened to me. I must have blacked out, blanked, and when I awoke on shore, peering inside the jelly of my mind, all I find is waves and sand and these hands holding these rocks, and I am lost, and I don't know where I'm from. So the plan is, I must keep speaking. I must keep talking to you until the truth of me seeps through the cracks in my words, until I've heard my life in my own voice, not in sound bites on news nights on panel shows, but here, slow, I will know myself if you will know me. So let's start at the start. We know I am a mermaid. You've probably heard of me, most likely via Disney, um, a mythical creature, unable to walk, unable to escape the ocean's walls, unable to leave whatever surface we're laid upon. I am a symbol of mystery, docility, duty, loyalty, danger. Is this who you want me to be? Strangely, these days I am also always white. I am a white half-human half-fish. White flesh, green or grey tail that sparkles in the froth of clean sea. White arms, white breasts, white neck that rises from the depths to wave to longing men on boats far from home. White skin that sinks below unpolluted sea, never to be seen again until the next cartoon, the next book, the next comic. But they are confused. The first version of me came from Assyria centuries ago. A place that now most of you would know as Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Iran. Sound familiar? 
Places where people are thought of are not thought of as white once they are in another place proud of its own whiteness. The kinds of places that base their supposed superiority and duty to intervene on a mythology of racial classification almost as ridiculous as the invention of me. My reflection is seen only in water. My colour dependent on the sky that day, cloudy, clear, foggy, storm winds. Maybe this is why I'm lost, why I don't know who I am, where I am. I have no real idea of my skin shade and maybe this makes me too dangerous to be given a place. Or perhaps I'm really not real at all, seen in the water's reflection only through another's imagination. But if I am, if I exist now with these rocks in my hand, I will talk of the land I could have come from. I will hope to jog some memories as there are guards beneath the waters in front of me and if I don't have a good story I've heard they won't let me swim any further. I'll be left here in the shallows unable to let them know that I have grown from an acceptable area of salty H2O. And she goes through a long story of where she is. Oh, it's not finished yet, Joel. Yeah, it's a really long thing, you know, we're going through the Mediterranean, we're going through everywhere. Anyway, then we get to basically the end of that. I'm just going to skip it. Uh, <clears throat> so I suppose, in the end, I can say to the guards, it's okay, we are the same. But then again, the more my memory returns, the more likely it seems that I might say instead... Every area would be desolate without the delicacies and eccentricities that it's made up from and by, those who have passed by and who have stayed. We have eyes and ears that see and hear all of what you want us to be, but we still ask what that might be. Because it seems unbelievable that you want us to be clever and kind, but not too clever than to be cleverer than you. Definitely not clever enough to take that job you want and not too kind to make you look mean and greedy. And of course, you want us to be pretty, but not too pretty, not so pretty that we might over pretty women you need to marry. Not so pretty that we might be too pretty to want to get married. We must get married. You want us to be covered so that we can be othered. You want us to be covered so we seem unable to choose. You want us to be naked so you can write your name upon us. You want us to have hair out so you can say, see, we are free. You want us to be unsure of our faith. You want us to be steadfast in our faith. You want us to represent the faith for the faithless. You want us to be unable to represent ourselves. You want us to represent the parts of ourselves you want. You want us all to be mermaids or war-stricken children. You want us to be myths and legends and folk tales. You want us to be National Geographic photos. You want us to be documentaries, charity campaigns. You want us to save you, save them, save ourselves. You don't want us and we do not need you to. I put the stones in my hands down, go down into the deep water, find a coral that tells me of a cavernous split in the seabed's belly and I go to it, ready to find my way, my very own way to a place of my own. All right, I liked that. Hmm, at the end of that, that was good, thank you. Um, so I'm gonna do this, this was so lovely because I turned up here tonight and I didn't have this book because I never have this book with me. And this lovely lady at the front, Wendy, sorry, just naming, um, had this there. And I was like, oh, that's my book. <laughs> can, I, can I borrow it? Um, and, and she very kindly said yes. Um, so I'm going to read from it because I haven't read from it for a while. Um, it is a play. Um, but in the strange way that writing and storytelling works, it started as a poem um, that was commissioned by the Hayward Gallery in London, um, from an art installation that was in there and um, it turned into something very different um, but it was based on well it was based on a lot of things it was based on personal experience it was based on um, workshops that I'd been doing with women in prison 
um, workshops with women who'd come out of prison, workshops with women who'd been involved in the criminal justice system to some extent, and then also um, interviews with the chef at a Michelin-starred restaurant that I was working at. So it was a really random bringing together of stuff. Um, but it turned out to be this character, the chef in the women's prison, uh, who came out of it all. So that was nice. And um, i just read a little bit of her talking about her life before prison. I loved a man once who cut shapes into skin because his words didn't work. Worst thing was I wanted to work with words and so when I spoke he looked at me like I'd hurt a part of him I'd never hurt. I never saw him do it, his work, but I saw the blood. I wiped it, dried like a dye-poisoned lake from the leather of a jacket. I scrubbed silver Prada trainers doused in DNA with a bleach-dipped toothbrush that he'd hardly used. He wasn't used to a girl like me. He'd say, babes, you're so gully, you know, but proper clever too, you want to do proper things, innit? And I'd smile like, yeah, I know, you're right. Even though every night I used to lie awake wondering what the fuck I was going to do with my life. He just let me silently do what I always did. Stroll through the netted smoke he blew, wrap my legs around hips and kiss like my life depended on it, because it sort of did. If I'd actually seen him do it, his work. Maybe I would have left, unable to handle the careless mess, faces like smashed birthday cakes on the pavement. But then again, maybe I wouldn't because he was sexy and strong and he made me feel like I was too. And when you've grown up in a darkness so black, that's not something to be taken lightly. So when one night he asked me, babes, can you put this down your shoe for me? Yeah, I say, yeah, mine, of course. I was going to wear boots anyway. We drive away and I close my eyes, making my mind as wannabe unsee-through as the tinted windows on the rented car that cost more than his flat. But it was part of all that and he had to have it, just like I had to have him. I needed him to be happy. I needed him to be happy because this was a world where a girl could apparently never compete. The shapes we'd cut into skin would apparently be too neat. We'd apparently feel sick when it really came down to it, hearing frozen branches of bones crack. We wouldn't be able to handle that. Wouldn't have that thing it takes to scrape an eyeball with the edge of a blade like it's some kind of food's unwanted skin, bring a knee to a nose, a gun to a tied tongue. We apparently just wanted Alizé mixed with champagne and fun wrapped in wraps that never let us forget who was boss, how much it all cost, how hard it all was to live like this. We wouldn't want to get our lips busted because we needed to be looked at like we were needed to be kissed and he needed me to feel like this so that I would need him, help him feel less empty. An emptiness that left him so full of soullessness that he took his own life every night there's plenty of ways to die and still stay alive babes he used to say anyway this one night when my gucci cowboy boots were full of lead end dreams sharp angles that dug into my ankles making me walk like i had one foot on the moon this one night i was standing by a nightclub door a loaded gun tucked into my sock and i spied the possibilities of what i might do like stop a bullet making spirals through the wiry hair of his chest by jumping up high slow motion hand in action trigger pulled but skin cold as from across the room a bullet pierces me making shapes inside no man could make no matter how much his words didn't work and i would die and he'd be safe unhurt and i would die i wanted that a little bit maybe a lot I'm not sure, but that isn't what happened at all. I stood by that nightclub door and I thought, how does it get to this? How do kids who want to be astronauts and writers and singers and engineers end up here 
in the dark corners of someone else's dream, guarded by thick doors and clipboards, wandering, playing with guns and fists and knives, forgetting what it was like to be alive once, because they knew once, before the crunches of the system made them feel that their minds were missing, that nobody would miss them, that they were dismissed then from living the type of life others lived, but they would never be forgiven for not dying, trying to live like them. When was it ever even possible for us to live like them? I bent down to get the gun out, ready to say, I'm out, let's duck out, let's use our money, start some sort of business, it can still be illegal, just not this. Not violence and conflict, unpicking the bits of skin that make up a person, their memories, their existence, their reason for being, but before my hand reaches in, I see him. My eye caught a mirror that showed me my life. It wasn't looking too nice, because there he was, his hand on some girl's face as she faced the stairs she was going down, and as he turned back round and saw me looking, his look looked deeper than if he'd just tried to deny he was inside her, even though his dick was still in it as he said it. I left the gun on the desk behind the door, where the woman on the till glanced down at it soundlessly and then straight back to her magazine, which was screaming about overweight faces and racist footballers who they'd still marry anyway. Everyone says something sometimes that they don't mean, don't they? I asked her for a pen, and she smiled at that handed me a black biro. I never gave it back. I'll stop that there. <laughs> um, thanks. I will now read some poems from my poetry collection, How You Might Know Me. Um, <coughs> it's four women in this poetry collection. They all work in different... Um, areas of the sex industry, all in London. Um, and the first woman that I will read from is, uh, again, this is in, in terms of the, the general theme of the evening. This is um, written following years and years of, again, based on my own experience of various things, working in strip clubs and stuff, but also um, working with women who um, were working in street-based sex work, um, doing writing workshops and stuff. So yeah, again, just sort of representing those stories. Um, they all know, they've all heard it, so it's fine, they said it was fine. Um, Sylvia is the first woman, and um, she is the elder of the crew, let's say. Um, <coughs> and this is when she is, um, so there's like four sections, and it's kind of telling a story. Um, I'm not going to give you that whole story, but it's just bits of it. Um, she's taking vouchers. This is called taking vouchers. Thing is, though, we take cash. I mean, it's always been that way. You know how people say it's always been that way? Well, what they mean is it has always been that way. Stars studding the sodding sky. That's how it's always been. The KFC geezer having some creepy old beard. That's how it's always been. Women getting money for men to do what they need to do so we can do what we need to do. That's always been. You come along with a voucher card telling me there's 20 quid on that for Argos. Start listing all the things I can get from Argos. Like, I don't know what you can get from Argos. Is not how it's always been. <laughs> you must think you're onto something brand spanking new here. You must think you're showing proactive innovation. But, mate, let me tell you, what's always been will be. Those stars don't start shining on sludgy seabeds just so you can swim through the night, do they? In fact, you know what? By offering me these vouchers, what you're basically saying is that this service, my highly skilled, let me add, service is not as important to you as another life, basically, like electric. Because I know you're not going to ask the man in the shop to swap lecky credits for that stupid football trophy you've got stuck to your dashboard with superglue now, are you? But if I asked, what would you rather go without tonight? Me or a bit of glow in your hallway? I know you'd want to get my talents and hold a candle when you get home. So, you know, priorities, mate. 
you've got to prioritise in this life, otherwise you just end up in the dark regardless. Talking of which, I do need a new lamp for the living room. Let's go on then, just this once. Um, and then, <laughs> thanks. School gates. If you want to catch a quick death, stand outside school gates smoking a cigarette. If you want to make it particularly speedy, then I'd advise making it primary school gates, ones where kids wear caps, shorts, blazers, ties, you know the type I mean, posh. If you realise you don't really want to die, shout at the gates, I'm older than you'll ever be, so yes, yeah, step to me, show me what you've got, bet it's less than a dead moth, I could bury you under these gates and what would you do? Getting all ghetto on them might gain you a few months. Or, alternatively, lean on the gates with fagging, enervated lips, point out the dad that picked you up like milk last week, say, oh, Philip, I didn't know you liked these gates too. <laughs> Watch the folded eyes divert to the microscopic marvelling whilst you smoke undisturbed at the gates, grandkids running over. Um, day out with daughter. is not far away, probably, my wooden death. So I want to say, I should have said, that time we went swimming in the Lido, goose pimples pointing out our mistake, nipples harder than sucked, dragonfly vibrates above your pineapple ponytail, aquamarine neon nudges me to tears, nature's colours more than I can take, bursts my heart with its necessity, this unreal blue above you, a levitating spark clenches my breath away, makes me want to live forever. Think of the colours I've yet to live. Let me live in this Lido under chlorinated dead leaves, freezing my tits off for as long as the world is being held, for as long as you are in front of me, blowing ripples, unaware of my God. Do some people feel like this always? You splashed me. The dragonfly disappeared with your laugh. My cheeks soaked in, soaked in pool water, washing away the other water. You took a twig from my hair to put behind your ear, smiling, dripping, brilliant. I want to say... This was my life, you, in water. Forces working against us. One, foreigns. Liberal I am, I mean my mum was foreign, but even I have limits, you have to admit, it's getting limitless the shit we're expected to take because others take shit because their lives have had limitless amounts of shit. So now they get what they can where they can. Do you think they know things we don't know? Two, images. How you might know me comes to mind every time someone says, I think I know you. I think you bloody well don't, but do you? TV, magazines, films, documentaries, mockumentaries all show me a version of me that isn't me. I'm not in the extreme me, I'm just me. Pictures like that make it seem like we're greedy bitches wanting Gucci or paddling pools full of cocaine, even though I wouldn't say no to that, who would? I make my grandkids lunch for school every day. Three, porn. Because I'm old, I get young ones haven't got a clue. Think they have a clue, but a clue would be to know where to look. They can't look, don't look unless it's on a screen. I like it myself sometimes, but it's not what I base my sexuality on. My sexuality is based on other people's, yeah, I suppose that's true, even now at this big age, but I'd rather that. At least they're real people, even if I don't know their names. The other day, one said, I hope he's not have my baby. I said, love, I'm 62. He said, so. I said, you wore a condom. He said, so. I said, you only put it in my mouth. He said, so. <laughs> Four, police. Safekeeping is not keeping us safe. To keep us safe would be to keep us paid well, but women's jobs don't pay well, some don't pay at all. Squat it up all night long, you can't stop what can't be stopped. If you want us to stop, there's a way to stop making women's jobs that don't pay well and some which don't pay at all. I am not a victim of anything but your system, the one you patrol, the one you plod. Keep going, I'm not a criminal, he's not a criminal. Move on, there's a woman over there who will never get justice. Get out of my business, get over there, stop business. Being without justice, how about that? Uh, last one from Sylvia. Why I can't marry you. you know, she's got a long-term boyfriend, you know, I know it's sad. 
Pete. But Pete's not really that great a guy, but I mean, still, he's proposed to her in a previous poem with a ring made of Rizla, which is quite romantic <laughs> for Pete. You tell me I'm a good woman, and I think I've known many good women. They've sprung from mattresses as gravel rains through windows, scratching bedside clocks. They've taken clothes off to dress another's wound, not put them on again unless it healed. They've swilled words in mouths till tumours of triumph, still they never spat. They've cleaned arms of old men who only ever washed with belt-buckled whiskey breath. They've laid on paper in blue biro, making bricks seem as kickable as cotton wool used on eyes. They've bled tequila on dance floors to move better to the sound of never being good enough because they never are good women. You will find them alone in a pockets of a world never tailored to fit them. You will find them alone in rooms ornamented with faces that never come to call. You will find them and when you do, they will be good to you. And before you leave, you will say, you are a good woman. And she will nod as if it is enough to be good without being loved. So now we go to Sharifa, who... Um, <coughs> As reasons that will become apparent as we go on, has um, come over to London from Egypt, which is where I am half from. So I am therefore fully allowed to do this accent, which is somewhat dubious, but it's fine. Um, <coughs> even revolutionaries get horny. Men without revolutionary principles are just like men without any principles at all when it comes to sex. They want to share more, maybe. Want to divulge to me the secrets of their theories, how they wish the world would spin so people like me could be free, could be so much better off. But ultimately, they will expect my clothes to disappear, they will expect flesh to be put against flesh, they will expect at least some effort from me, they will expect a nest of pleasure in eyes, they will expect an audible sign of encouragement, as do I. The difference with revolutionary men is that they will also expect a discount. As of course, I should be aware that they are fighting, fighting the system for people like me, so people like me can be free, can be so much better off. Olympic Dreams 2012. He asks me who I'm rooting for. When he says the word rooting, he takes one hand off the wheel and pumps his fist up in the air as if knocking on a floating door. The window is open and my hair is stuck to my lip gloss. He takes my delay to mean I don't understand the question. So he elaborates. Iraq, Saudi, Egypt, Turkey, I don't know. Wherever you're from, is that who you want to win? I smile. Go Team GB! He likes that. Chuckles away for a lot longer than the phrase deserves. Stopping at the traffic lights, I want to tell him that sport is something I follow only to find the greatest concentration of stupid men in one place. That day it happened to be in London, but I'd travelled to Beijing, Toronto, Athens, Rome, Sydney. The list is long and the air miles significant. But most of the time it's easier to just smile and nod. So I do. He wouldn't understand how he is cloned worldwide, how his genitals are globally moulded into one, how his unique perspective is mass-produced, how his empathy is a fizzy drink can in every world city and his significance on this earth is as unremarkable as the stickiness of his semen. He would be thrown into a state of long-term confusion to hear me philosophise on how the work I do is a form of healing for humanity, how I must travel to the places where I am most needed, that I traffic myself in an attempt to restore harmony to the damaged species we are. But by spending time with him, as man as undeserving as every other I have spent my time with, I allow him to heal. 
and by giving him this gift, those in his life benefit and the world is a slightly better place. But mostly, if I do this work, then it means at least one less girl is being taken against her will to have a body part put inside her as she cries for her passport, her mother, her child. Telling secrets. We knew something terrible had happened. The woman who was our neighbor's sister sobbed. Our mother made her sweet tea and used the special glasses. We knew she was different, there was a rhythm to her body. The woman whispered through lips made into cyanide sunset. Our mother listened with thorny ears, eyes darting the door. We knew secrets were being told and we weren't old enough. The woman removed her hijab, our mother ran to close the curtains. We knew a neck should not rest so purple on shoulders. The woman lifted her chin, a world map of maroon borders. Our mother dabbed antiseptic cotton, we covered our noses. We knew that smell meant woman flesh, woman tears, woman the woman. When will my heart be seen for what it is? Our mother, a wife, is the most deluded of peer people, my dear. Um, and oh, we'll, leave Sh we'll leave Sharifa there. Um, so the next one is Tali, and she's the youngest of the lot. And um, in the... Uh, in the day, she works in a bakery. So, one day when I worked in a bakery. You were a buff guy, queuing to buy a cheese and onion pasty. I knew because your eyes became canals when you saw them in the oven, your perfect head to the side, mountainous. I stood with my blue gloves on, nails poking out, wishing for one second or maybe ten that I could be invisible. What do you pay someone else for the pet yellow pasty you couldn't wait to eat? So I wouldn't have to wonder if you knew me from somewhere that wasn't here in the bakery. I stuck calling cards of me wearing fishnets in phone boxes once, trying to be more professional. My black and white pick has been up in Debenhams, shoplifter. I imagine being your girlfriend, how summery that would be. You'd pick me up in your golf and we'd go cinema, share popcorn. I imagine being you, looking at me, your new girlfriend, wondering what you did to get such a good girl, so sweet. I imagine being your daughter, weird, waiting for the sound of your key, the little jumps my feet would make to extol your heart. I imagine being your mother, so proud of the job I'd done, hoping beyond hope that you never brought home a girl like... That's £1.25, I said, and you paid. No change needed. Our fingers touched once. I almost saw we were married, but you threw me a smile that said, I know you. And I thought, do you? Um, and, yeah, Tali's got a lot of problems. This is one, admitting you are an addict. That day was too dry for the man paying in drugs to enter me. My mouth too, quarried chalk, valley, tunnel, dust, full saliva for fingers to add lubrication, not be possible. He, disgusted, pulled, I, desperate, pushed, squeaking onto him, climbing, rope, chafe, could not let little liquid lack ruin this deal. I soldiered on, sandpaper, onion, salt, transform, mud prints, pant real happiness. He was able to get where I needed him to get, to get where I needed. Um... And then, <coughs> last one from Tali. Dropped home by a hitman. Have you ever really killed anyone? I asked, Dee straddling his lap. The car seats were heated, windows one quarter down. He lit a cigarette, blew a grin away from me. People talk, babes, you know how it is. I did. Fingers fiddled with knickers wedged front ways under my jeans. Fingers that really wanted to stick themselves down his throat. Tickle all those cold red ridges of flesh. Delve past tobacco saliva. Blue flames of leftovers. Nails nestling into the tip of a heart. Feel it throb against cuticles. Dent it. Puncture with gel. Nail polish them with draw. Hold up the paint I'd picked an expected palette. You have a real heart. It beats against these very fingertips. Look. 
Instead, he flicks the cigarette out the window, closes it, blows onto it, draws an X into it, laughs. We all gotta do what we gotta do, innit, babes? The X fades to the colour of the street outside. I get my keys out. Agree. Um, <coughs> and uh, <coughs> the last one is uh, Darina. Um, I'll just read two short ones from there and then we shall hear from Joelle. She works in a strip club. <laughs> oh, that was funny. She doesn't now. Not now, poetry pays so well. <laughs> um, Serena works in a strip club. But she's here saying, if I could work on a building site, um, I'm never really sure about Tarina's accent um, so today I'm going to just do it really posh, why not I have dreamt of trade paint under my fingernails steel capped toes touching silver spokes of scaffolds each step like a paparazzi snap I have watched hard hats and wondered does he dream of wax strips does he wonder if his armpits are off-putting does he shape his pubic hair with the help of a template numbered one to four? I have seen the exhausted satisfaction in muscles of a man who has carried cement bags. The same muscles clench the chair I gyrate my need in front of, breezy, asking if he likes what he does as a job. Well, love, most blokes know if they need to, they can do it. That's the beauty of it. I smile and think most women too know the same about this, but not this, I wish. Um... And then I'll end on, I know what you want more than my body. You want me to say it's what I want to do. You want me to love it so that it takes me nearer to loving you. I say this is what I want to do. I say I love falling in love every night as I am with you. Thank you very much, Library. And uh, please welcome. <laughs> oh, you don't. Yeah. So glad. That um, Katharina is going to do Joelle's introduction. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for these voices, but also for raising these voices from the page for us. Um, yeah, Joelle's real job now. Um, she's a poet, a playwright and an author, um, as well as the founder and artistic director of Slambassadors, the Poetry Society's National Youth Slam Championships. Drell has written, written three full collections of poetry, including her most recent Songs My Enemy Taught Me, which she is currently touring internationally, um, from Europe to Australia and Southeast Asia. But she's here tonight, and she's going to read from this collection, um, and it focuses on the experiences of women again from marginalized communities worldwide, including her own. Please give a warm welcome to Joelle. Have a look at you. All right, let's let that go. Hello, how are you? You good? Uh, Sabrina Mafuz, that was off the hook. That was incredible. So thank you so much. Come on, give love. That was amazing. Um, I'm not like Sabrina, though, so like, if I stop speaking, that means clap. You get me? Um, so... <laughs> um, <coughs> I'm from the old sort of spoken word working class community and we just need love. You know what I mean? Oh my God, thank you so much. Oh my God. <laughs> it's 
So yes, my name's Joelle Taylor and I'm a poet, playwright, author and stripper. And <laughs> I didn't even laugh, they're just like, stripper. Funny little show she does, putting clothes on. Um, but um, yeah, so and I, I've written um, three books. I'm just repeating what you said. But um, yes, first of all, I want to talk about the fact that um, 18 years ago, I set up a project in this country, which is the longest running youth slam championships in the world. It's called Slam Ambassadors. And it's been run for the 18 years through the Poetry Society. And the reason I set it up was to find um, young people who were like myself when I was younger, who come from the ends, um, that means like uh, poor areas, come from the ends and um, have a burning passion to create and want to communicate and want to write and want to make films and want to do theatre, but have absolutely no access to the arts at all. When I was a kid, I wrote my first poem, but I'd never, I'd never read a poem. Um, I wrote my first play, I'd never been to the theatre, and so I wanted to try and access those kids who are a little bit like me, and who are coming from those backgrounds. Um, and this was um, personally a very successful thing for around about 18 years, and I've worked with thousands of young people, some of whom have become very well known, and some of whom I'm just very proud of because um, they're incredible human beings, they're just good people, do you know what I mean? Um, and they've added to this understanding, the encyclopedia, the archive of our lives, they've added phenomenally. And then last year, about 18 months ago, I got to a point where um, I simply, I guess, it was almost like a breakdown, but a very working class breakdown, you know, where I just kind of had a pint, <laughs> looked a bit fucked off. Um, didn't brush my quiff. Um, and essentially what was happening for me was that I'd spent so long working with young people who had, a, had been denied their voices, working so long trying to help people um, recover their voices and break their silences that I'd completely forgotten to tell my truth, to break my silences. And so it got to a point where I thought, I'm going to have to do it. And so this book came out, Songs My Enemy Taught Me. And the book started as a small poem, um, actually it's really long, but very short for me, uh, only a fortnight, sit carefully. Um, a poem called Canto, which was about my early life growing up. And it details the fact that my family were um, uh, from a sort of very deprived background. It was characterized by quite a bit of violence and alcoholism and mixed fibers, things like that. I know, it's awful. <laughs> God bless you. Things like that. Um, and to the point where when I was about five years old, um, my mom and my dad both lost their jobs, didn't have any money, and so we were taken off to Blackpool and put up in a B&B &B hotel. And it was fucking awful, mate. Can you imagine? Awful. And, <laughs> and then while I was there, because the, the whole of the hotel, if you can imagine it was overlooking Blackpool, um, and the sea there, which is pretty grim anyway. Um, and it was Christmas time, and there were no people there apart from my family, which is myself, my big brother, my mom, my dad, and three soldiers. And three soldiers raped me while I was there. 
So this begins the story. This book, though, isn't just about my experiences. It encapsulates other women's experiences globally, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But I'm going to read you just a few bits of that opening poem. It's called Canto. It goes like this. Oh, you know, like in cantos, you know, it means like bear long poem with like numbers in the middle. Yeah. Instead of um, doing the one, two, three thing, I'm just going to do that. Is that cool? All right, wicked. <laughs> Silence was a song my enemy taught me. The bed is cold and my teeth are abandoned buildings and somewhere there is the smell of something burning, a book, a flag, a letter. In my room at the top of the seaside hotel there is a single bed with a white sheet. I cannot think of anything to write on it. The bed is a slowly developing photograph. Here's us around the dinner table. We are smiling like carved meat. No one notices that the daughter is eating herself. Here's you walking home from school. Your shadow walks behind you as if ashamed. Even the trees whisper about you. You have embarrassed the wind. And here's him, and him, and him. A family portrait, successful, double-folding their uniforms and ironing their smiles, catching children delivered from the conveyor belt of their wives' wombs and holding them up to the bare light bulb to bless. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. They are boys. And here are the stairs, and here the long corridor you are afraid to walk along. Perhaps it is your cervix. My womb is a war zone after everything is taken, after the soldiers have left, spitting into the palms of their hands, after the shelves have been emptied and only so nothing, after the nothing gathers in great mountains at the sides of the streets, after the streets are running with hungry ghosts, after women's skins are slung from washing lines, after children write their names in the dust that once were there, fathers I carry the war in my womb perhaps this is what happened someone said my hymen was a door behind which rebels were making plans and they kicked it in paced the room and stuffed their pockets with valuables my mother's wedding ring my first tooth a bright blue hair bubble your address this they wanted to know where I was hidden. I am the corner of the room. I am a crime scene, an oil-rich country. I will be divided equally between nations. Twelve years old. There are small bodies washed up on the shores of my eyes. When my photograph is taken, another girl's face appears instead of mine. There are men. 
seated quietly at municipal formica desks at the neck of my womb. You do not look like your face, they say. Please state the purpose of your visit. Did you pack these bags yourself? My sand bag hips, my barbed wire hill. Many will die defending it. Others will drown in the sediment of a trench whose walls are always caving in. My cunt is a bomb crater the villagers gather round the edges of and peer into. Sometimes smoke rises from deep within. These are my ghosts. These are messages in a lost language. Capture them in jars. Display them on suburban mantelpieces, on T-shirts, on memes. Hashtag be my friendly. Hashtag be my hashtag. Be my hashtag Christ. The girl whose eyes are shallow graves beneath, beneath suburban patios goes to school. And rows of heavy wooden lidded desks are filled with the smiling dead. When the world ended, nobody noticed. The sun has eaten itself. Skeleton birds mutter bones, songs. Her mother and father tell jokes about her. Everybody laughs. The girl whose eyes are foxholes laughs. The teacher laughs. Children gathered like litter around the stairwell laugh. The social worker laughs. The policeman laughs. The doctor laughs. The psychiatrist giggles. The world ends. I remember how silence was a choir. There's you in the kitchen. Vibrato. There's you at the back of the class, soprano. There's you walking home, tenor. Your solo silences are everywhere. For Christmas, I give my mother an uncomfortable truth. She wears it when I visit. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Do you know what? I've gone around the world making people cheer at the end of that. So I'm going to do it here in Ledbury. Because that's the silence being broken. So on the count of three, go crazy. One, two, three. That's how Hitler got in. With the rise of the right... No, I'm joking. <laughs> so... Um, I was very uncomfortable just telling my story in one little book. Um, so what I wanted to do and decided to do was um, to, with the help of the incredible Arts Council, is to go and work with different communities of marginalised women from girls who had had like 13-year-olds with FGM to women in prison to refugees um, and to women who voted Brexit, which was peculiar. So as you, get the, as you look at the book, you'll see that there's all kinds of different stories within that. And what I want to do now is, for the first time ever, I want to read one of those stories. This poem is called Concerto, and it's um, the story of three incredible women throughout history. 
And I won't tell you too much about it, except that it focuses on South Africa, Germany, and Walthamstow. Um, so in South Africa, we meet a character called Dudazili Zozo. And there is a kind of, I don't know if you're aware of what's going on in South Africa, but there's been what's been described as an epidemic of corrective rape. And it's women who look like me are basically dykes, gay women, however you want to define us, who are being corrected. And this is her story. It was in Brooklyn I met her. She came to me in the steam of the hotel bath. I've come a long way, she mouthed, in the eye of a whale on the back of a tick on the wing of a songbird in the dead fish of a ship, the contrail of a plane. You're writing a book, she asked. I pulled the towel tighter to my chest. Yes. She sat on the edge of the bath and sighed her breath. Ghost, I have a story for you. They'd watched me for years as I grew taller than my body, noting the way I walked like revelation, each step a swear word, an insult, profanity, the way feet meant the earth, the way dresses fell from me like empire, and women smiled when I did, and watching from their under-eye, their overhang look, they shrunk into the bushland of darker thoughts. They say, animals live there, Wild things that have treat, tasted freedom and learned to walk on two feet. Men meet in bars and hate the day. They say they lived behind me always, all my life, always behind me. And a man does not like to follow. When they came for me, they were prayer and animal, their cocks crucifix, and I lay corrected to Henny Sherman, 1942, Germany. I see you in the smoke from my cigarette, cocky, one eyebrow raised, your hair cut as short as your life. I seem to think you were drinking, holding a bourbon or some other distilled masculinity, a belly of flames and ash lighting your cigarette from mine. Bones rise. You said, smiling like railway tracks, like brothel corridors, cheap red velvet lips, your eyes, green badges. We knew they were coming, you said, but stood our ground until we became the ground. And when they took her, when they took her, the skin fell from my face. The trees burrowed their heads beneath the soil, and all of the stars were insignia. I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you. I just realised the reason I stopped there at the Walthamstow bit is like, I thought it was a bit shit, really. Um, the one I'm going to do... Not really, not really. Oh, who is that? Is that my mum? <laughs> I'll make eyes at you. Where are you? Um, I want to read um, uh, another piece. Um, so a huge part of this is not just about um, getting women's stories from various communities about the world, but is, is about thinking 
about class as well. Class is a very important thing for me. And recently I was asked, commissioned by the Orwell Prize, to write a piece for them. And they did this project called Down and Out in London and Paris, which is based on that book. Little did they know that had a huge impact on me as a 14-year-old kid, that book. And it kind of gave me a context in which I could understand the way in which I was living. And so I'm going to read some bits from that. It's called Gutter Girls. And it's, yeah, it's about class. It's quite obvious, really. Hold up. After this, I'll do my funny one, yeah? Thanks, mate. <laughs> Some girls fall from sunlit skies straight down into flat pack floral dresses, grab their smiles from the hook behind the door, skip to school on tap-dancing tiptoes while their shadows walk ahead of them, get all the best job offers, ignore them at parties. Some girls fall and miss their bodies entirely, find themselves graffiti, their skin a pavement, a low-laying night, each eye an unlit corridor inside a home she will never return to. Some girls are always falling. One. Poor women. Our bodies are factories, we stand numb-lipped and staring at conveyor belts of beds passing beneath us a carousel of scribbled sheets of unwashed mornings, insincere sunsets red as the lit end of God's cigarette has been around here again. But none of us girls will genuflect genitals to him now and we stand still curbside, the street passing beneath us. Each checking each walker on for the correct parts. Each bed is a door to a home you do not own. Open it. You are lucky to have this body. Your skin is currency. You are wallet. Your body a factory. Men crowd your doorway, desperate for sleep, for a mother to bury themselves in your body is a cemetery too. Poor women, we ladle nothing from cradles of saucepans, dinner plates overflowing with the glorious empty. We bow our heads and thank no one. The feast of St. Gyro, and we are grateful. Trust my forelock, we're all very grateful. Those of us who learn to spell our names in the dole queue, Grateful. Those playing job seekers lottery, grateful. Raffle ticket, bureaucracy, food bank, buffy, we are grateful. Three. Poor women. We keep the dark in our mouths, tied up on an old thread of rope. We have swarms of fox building at the back of our throats, wild cats quietly watching you from behind thickets of teeth. Fear us, it is simpler. Poor women swear, and buildings fall in supplication, finally relieved of the need to stand straight to act like gentlemen's. Our mouths are condemned, council estates are canals. Dive into our cold collapse, the gutters of girls. A hand reaches for your ankle, you lucky boy. A torn bicycle, filthy death, Water as thick as language. Poor women, we have 
planning permission for our tongues and build bars and all you can eat some porter cabin bordellos we have permission to speak to spit knowing every band word is a book in our mouths we are freeholders of our glass orifices but there is a ceiling yes even down there and no not even at that price we will not sell you will not gentrify this idiom motherfucker Thank you. Poor women, we searched for homes like missing children, clung to the shadows cast by tube trains, gripped the back strap of decommissioned buses, lone walking with arms of stretched carrier bag plastic until we flat kick the front door to silence, bite off our bras and whisper the secret names of the storms. You all right? Yes. Hitler. Yes, we are. All right. This is a true story, right? So, like I said, for like 18 years, I've been going around the country and um, um, leading workshops and masterclasses with various young people. Last year, a woman I met online asked me if I would come into her school and deliver a workshop at half the normal price. And I'm like, mm, yes, yes, I'll do that for you, of course. What I didn't realize it was like a very, very posh public school who could afford to pay possibly, you know, twice my normal price. So anyway, I get there and I turn up at this school and it's in Colchester. And um, the first sign that things weren't going quite well was um, I get there it's huge grounds, beautiful place, and I mince in like that. It's like quarter to eight in the morning. I've got a hangover, whatever. I walk in, and the woman says, would you like a coffee? I said, yes, please. And she gave me a Nescafe. Do you get me? I'm nice, you know. So I was like, thank you so much. And I drank the whole thing, you know. I drank this whole Nescafe, and I sat there. She's like, right, we've got our first workshop. I was like, okay, let's go do this. And I went, and we had this group of amazing young people, very, very posh, you know. It always makes me really laugh when extremely posh people try and rap. Love it. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's the horse Porsche rhyme that really gets me every time. <laughs> Making myself laugh. And um, so anyway, we did this workshop, and it was brilliant. And in spite of me talking about posh people, everybody's the same. People are just bloody brilliant. And we have a great time, and I'm feeling really high. And me and the lead teacher, the woman from the internet, are mincing across the playground together because I've got a three-hour break between each workshop, and I've got work to do, so I've got my laptop. And uh, we're just about to go into the staff room, and the woman, literally, this head teacher, stands in front of the staff room door like this. And I was like, oh, my God, is she coming on to me? No, she wasn't. And I was like, I was like okay, hi. And she was like, um... I was like, yeah, uh, we just need to, to get into the staff room because, you know, that's where the staff go. Um, and she was like, ah. And eventually the lead teacher said, look, sorry, Joel, would you mind just like going outside and waiting a little while. I was like, cool. 
fine. What's this about? So I go outside and I, I light a cigarette and I'm looking at the children, blowing cig cigarette smoke through the bars. <laughs> not, not really. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did not. And, uh, and then I go back in and the lead teacher is standing there kind of really sort of very pale and disturbed. And I was like, what's going on, Saffron? And I is actually her name. <laughs> Or fetish kitty, depends. What you no, not really. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I go there, and <laughs> she said, this is really embarrassing, Joelle. I don't know what to say to you, but uh, basically, you can't go in the staff room. Now, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. I'm like, yes, I can. That's what I do. She's like, no, you can't, um, because you're making everybody here feel really uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't wanked once. No, I was like, how? How am I doing this? And she's like, well, can't really talk about it now. We'll talk about it later. I was like, no, is it, is it the gay? Is it the working class? Is it the teeth? What is it? And she said, look, don't worry. We'll talk later. Come, we've got you an office. You don't need to worry about anything. I've got you an office. You can do your work. Follow me. So I go through and I follow this woman, Saffron, to the office, and I, she opens this door, right? She opens this door, and it's a storeroom cupboard. For real? But because I'm, like, really English, I was like, thank you. <laughs> and I, I go off into the storeroom cupboard, and what makes it even worse is that she said she'd had, a, like, a desk and chair set for me, but it was, like, one of them children's ones, you know, like, in nursery school. So I was like, thank you. Even worse, the workshop that I'd had, which was blinding, I can't tell you, I really enjoyed it, we had a good laugh. The kids from that workshop came, it was like a little misted, you know those kind of bathroom windows in the storeroom, and they came, and they came to the window, and they were going, Miss, are you a man? Miss, are you a man? And I was like, no, I'm a psychopath, and I know where you live. No, I, didn't. I, didn't. I, was, I was very good, I was like, make it rhyme. Can you think of a metaphor for homophobia? Um, so anyway, this poem is about something I've been asked an awful lot over the years, in spite of being included in the curriculum, which is from very, very upper-middle-class arts administrators who go, oh, my God, but like, how do the children react to you? This is called Avatar. I send my smile in first, teeth barred as late night drinking cemeteries, two bouncers dug into newspaper face, I'm all pisshead epistles and hand slaps, jokes I am the punchline too, I have taught my tongue to tap dance, faster girl, go on, faster, and I laugh until laughter is a grave dug in wet soil, a polite explosion in a distant land where my name knows me me better than you. Miss, how do you spell no? I send my smile in first. My teeth a white flag, the unrepentant cliffs of Dover. We'll meet again, I sing, as we meet for the first time. And my smile, you say, is the border between uncomfortable lands. And I'm smiling in the wrong language again. Did you pack your face yourself, love? Look at me. Look. 
this beautiful, ugly, this girl who makeup ran from, whose hair stands apart from her and points, look at me, look, pretty dirt, inelegant ballet of bad breath, imperfect heart, rupture grin, look, I am falling from my face, my body, a bad neighbourhood, a quick walk through the dark side of town, I keep my other bodies in the wardrobe though, bruv, well fed on dumb and thin backs, turning from me, hung from wire necks. Look at me! Look. I send my smile in first. Fold the arms of my spectacles until they look like my mother. Remove my spectacles. I am the spectacle. And my eyes invert. I seed the underskin. I sing the body epileptic. And they stare and it's okay. I would scream obscenities, but I am the obscenity, that brittle, thin, lip, ugly. The corner you are afraid to turn with teeth that have been broken into a ransacked mouth. My smile, a hairline fracture, a split in the bedroom ceiling. Look at me. Look. My smile has grown tired of my face. Children. Stare through thick breath windows, singing male song. I am exiled to the storage cupboard in a school that wants my words, but not my uncomfortable face. I limp home, and the woman on the sofa tells me to stop smiling. That my face could be a scimitar if I held it correctly. And perhaps this woman is my left side. And perhaps this woman is the beginning of time. My chaos cage. My heart. Oh, flick knife Buddha and motherfucker earth. And she sees you seeing me. And her grief makes me beautiful. I send my smile in first. We... The women of ugly and unexpected who plan our faces like town centers, whose smiles make dictators flinch, whose thin lips crack like whips, taming classrooms of perfect things. We send our unspoilt eyes in. We send our blameless skin in. We send our open palms upward. We send our hearts forward. We send our smiles in first because one day we know the rest of us will follow. Thank you. So I'm just going to do one more, and then we're going to go for Q&A. Um, and this last poem is um, it's part of a longer sequence. So in the book, there's three parts. I forgot to say it's Songs of silence, songs of survival, and songs of uprising. And you can imagine, they detail various things. This is one of the last ones from Songs of Uprising. And it's to remind you... And no matter how you're feeling, every single person in this room has been to the edge at some point and may return there. I just want you to know that everything you think you've lost is still here, mate. It's still here. Everything you have ever 
lost is in here how the lines on your face were written how you could not afford your own face how your face was a battlefield deserted a war between parents how your pockets were tunnels and you were lost in them how no one came even though you called all night how your call was the sound of something small breaking how your teeth were tower blocks in which only white ghosts lived how your skin was a lost birth certificate how your birth certificate was proof of your death how they stole your smile to store on a high supermarket shelf how the industry unmade you how your tongue was a conveyor belt and you could not make the words fast enough how your soul was kept well fed in a zoo how the zoo was a library of lost souls how the souls stared on blinking from behind glass enclosures how the glass was etched with the hieroglyphics of rage how you made an origami figure of a small boy staring how some boys cry with their fists how some girls hang themselves from the thin edges of their smiles how they told you that white was the color that contained all others how your skin became a color that contained you how skin becomes insignia how they sold black back to you at inflated prices how rainbows are portents how rainbows are borders how you traveled to the other side of the rainbow and met a stranger traveling back the way you had come how a stranger looked like you how you are a stranger how your ancestors will be born after you everything you've ever lost here how they spat at you and the saliva became a sea and you sailed easily across it to the other side of your heart how your heart was a tectonic plate how your heart rubbed how it drifted apart how other people set up home on the opposite side of your heart to you how they sent smoke signals how you answered how your words turned to ash and blew away how your voice was thin ice you were afraid to walk across how Silence was a song your enemy taught you. How the last bus home took you to another man's city. How home keeps moving. How your streets were gentrified. How they gentrified our stages. How we were forced out of our own mouths. How your father lives in your face and nowhere else. How you were raped by a high court judge, son. How judges' wigs are mushroom clouds floating over the horizon. How your dreams were trained to walk in tight circles. How your dreams were dogs. How your father was a bomb and your mother rich in minerals. How you were dead. How you were dead. And death brought you flowers and you said, thank you, but you meant fuck you. How death 
waited outside all night. How pebbles against windows sound like Aleppo. How your mouth was a tornado that drew the whole town to it. Everything you have ever lost is in here. When you could let love sit beside you on a broken back sofa and change the channels. When maybe only one hand is required when perhaps if you place your palm prints beside each other, you might find that they make an atlas that could lead you out of here and love could wake you and you could be falling and through falling uncover the archaeology of your wings when after the grey apocalypse that no one else noticed, you might realise that trees hold hands beneath the earth. How you learn to hold hands beneath the earth. Everything you have ever lost is here. Here is the music of your brother breathing. Here is the shape of your mother here is the shadow that abandoned you. Here is your unfound song. Here is the legend of your lost tongue. Here are your teeth, your brittle, your bone. Everything you have ever lost, mate, is here. And it's waiting to come home. Thank you very much. You've been wicked. So um, I decided to write this book and I wanted to talk to somebody who has a, a huge knowledge within um, a huge number, a range of things from politics to grime music, clubbing, um, a huge range of things and who is also a really strong uh, writer who I admired and so I, w I contacted Sabrina, I was like, yo, she's like, why are you talking to me like that? No, I was like, um, would you uh, <laughs> consider... <laughs> Would you consider working with me as a content editor? And what I meant by that was, uh, would you help me to, um, to know which things I'm going to write about and um, look through the poems and say yes or no, or just be like, you know, that's shit, mate, or whatever. So that's the reason I asked to work with Sabrina, was literally expertise, knowledge, and grime. <laughs> that last bit was a lie, I hate grime. Why'd you say yes? Well, I mean, the whole thing was yes, really. Like when you were saying, <laughs> just to look through poems and go yes or no, <laughs> it was all like yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, 
I think, well, like Joelle mentions earlier about how um, she spent sort of decades working to uh, build up a scene, really. She's, um, I mean, she's saying Grime. I don't know who here knows about Grime, but there's there's a guy called Wiley who Joelle was really not like in any other way, <laughs> apart from the fact that he um, created the scene of Grime, which is now the most sort of exported, famous music genre from the UK at this mm. moment in time. And he did that because he, he was doing his own work, but he was constantly bigging up other people. Joelle is like that, but with poetry. So without her, th- there would be no sort of London, London-based anyway, like spoken word performance poetry scene. Um, and then, so when she started to get more into doing her own work, obviously it was just like, um, it was a no-brainer really to be involved with um, helping that to take some sort of shape, but it didn't really need any help. So I was sort of just like reading it and crying like I still am. <laughs> I mean, it's been like nearly two, what, like a year and a half yeah. or something, and I'm still crying. Almost a year. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was obviously a really good editor because I was like, oh, oh, like the whole time. And then she was just having to like comfort me about the stuff rather than offering any sort of uh, good advice, really. Um, But I suppose um, I really admired the way that the, because obviously you've just heard from Joelle here tonight, like her own poems, but actually the book really combines a lot of exceptional stuff like there's forms in there even like a form um a ridiculous form from the government about um women not being able to get benefits for children after number two but only if the third one is born and there's the product of rape and they have to declare that child as a product of rape and then they can still get benefits for it And, and she took that form and like made managed to make a poem out of that form um and then included poems from other women that she'd worked with throughout and so it's a it's a really um amazing way of combining all the stuff that I don't feel like poets I don't know if they don't feel like the, the confidence to do it or if there's a space to do it or if publishers are just not really into it or whatever but it felt like a a real progression in terms of like well what am I doing with a book like what story am I trying to tell what am I trying to document um and yeah, I feel like even reading the introduction for me felt like something I'd never read before. So it's really not on me. Enjoyed. <laughs> but I think from what Sabrina's saying, a really interesting thing's come out for me throughout this whole process for the last year, which is that um, how women as writers. So this is a commonality. We're both women, and we write across forms. I mainly do poetry and stories, but I was a playwright at one point. And I think, um, is anybody here a woman writer? If anybody goes, yes, that's wrong. Yeah. Anybody here a, a writer and is also a woman? Wendy. Ah, hi, mate. So um, have you tried to publish things? You're only just beginning that process. Okay, so one of the really shocking things for me about doing this, because... The thing with spoken word is you don't have a gatekeeper. You, you have a stage and a microphone, and sometimes you write things in the morning and that night you're saying them, which isn't to say it's very good, but that's not to say that gatekeeping is very good either. So now I've got into publishing, I'm starting to reach these bizarre walls between what we write and what we're able 
what is able to be actually viewed. And one of the things I learned was that it was 20, only 26% of poetry books written by women are reviewed, whereas 75% of those written by men are. And the question is, what? Does not, don't you think that's bizarre? Is it all blokes in here? No, I think that's, I think that's absolutely wonderful, frankly. <laughs> Quite right, too. <laughs> It's actually gone down since I started spouting this. It's now 25%. So all our work to produce this kind of um, fight back against that, because women are half the planet. We're actually more than half the planet because blokes keep running around hitting each other till they die. You know, so we're more than half the planet. So we are, in fact, the largest minority group. You know, we have women's shelves in the bookshops. What? What is that? And it's like, oh, it's like, oh. Uh, it's feminism or romance, that's it, really. We've got any other questions, guys? <laughs> I'm bored now. <laughs> um, no, that's all right. Oh, that's be way better. Whoa. It's way better. All we could see is nothing. Yeah, we've just got a few students in there, so any yeah, questions? Cool. I need one question, then. <laughs> any alcohol? <laughs> Love your T-shirts at the back. Oh, yeah. Can we have them? <laughs> so cute. That's so cute. <laughs> Did you have a question, mate? No, you're just doing your hair. Okay, well, should we end it? Let's end it. Okay, thanks so much for coming. You're legends, and um, hope you have a wonderful, wonderful festival. Thank you, Leverage. Thank you.